Welcome to the Safe and Sound Protocol podcast, a polyvagal theory informed therapy. I'm your host, Joanne McIntyre. Here we talk everything polyvagal and SSP related. Dr. Porges has provided us with a revolutionary framework for understanding the connection between our autonomic nervous system and behavior. The SSP acoustic intervention is an exciting new therapy helping people all around the world. Hello and welcome to episode 24. Today I have the utmost pleasure of speaking with Michael Romero. He is a practicing clinical psychologist with over 20 years of experience. He began his career as an adolescent psychologist. He worked in Bali in Indonesia, treating expatriates experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder following the Bali bombing in 2002. Michael has worked as an educator and supervisor for most of his career. He lectured at Macquarie University for over 10 years and was the international student counsellor at the University of Newcastle Counselling Service. Most of his career has focused on treating suicidal behaviours and complex trauma with EMDR, schema therapy, DBT and other strength-based approaches such as narrative therapy. He currently works in private practice where his primary clinical interest is treating functional neurological disorders, also known as FND. I'm sure everyone listening is going to totally enjoy this discussion. Michael is an expert on FND and has lived experience that he'll be sharing with everyone. Well, Michael, thank you again. I know we've been chatting um, getting to know each other a bit more over this time. So for our listeners, I was wondering, because you're kind of a bit of an expert on um, FND, if you could maybe just you know, let people know what exactly is yeah. FND. So FND is a highly common neurological, psychological, psychiatric condition that not many people know about and it's one of the most under underdiagnosed conditions that um, people who are having um, functional neurological symptoms will present to their GPs and go and see neurologists about. And what happens is patients with FND often fly under the radar because after seeing a neurologist, they're often presented with the fact that there is nothing, there's no structural cause. That, um, to the neurological experiences, uh, conditions um, and symptoms that they're experiencing, which leaves people in a very desperate, helpless place because essentially what's happening for them is a, a disconnection between the brain hardware and the brain software. And what I mean by that, the, the brain isn't communicating the right uh, signals to the body and the body is uh, re returning those signals. And so as a result, people with FND will experience symptoms like um, function, what we call functional seizures. So uh, in that context, um, experiences of convulsions that will last from anywhere between five minutes to an hour, um, that there's no structural uh, explanation for what's going on 
some other people experience uh, what's called functional um, motor uh, disorder. So, um, and that can affect gait, can affect, it can cause tremors, uh, dystonia, uh, another FND symptom or condition is called functional cognitive disorder, which um, essentially causes problems in, in word finding, in conversation, memory problems, attention problems, cognitive fogging and cognitive fatigue. So it's really an umbrella term to describe lots of different conditions. In fact, um, it's I guess it goes broader than, than the, the conditions that I'm talking about. Uh, for example, um, conditions like migraine or chronic uh, fatigue or um, irritable bowel, they're, they're actually functional conditions that there's no underlying uh, structural cause. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I know another client that I had, she actually had presentations where she lost her ability to speak and to swallow. You know, yeah. um, um, that sometimes, yeah, it can show up in neurological issues with around throat and voice and, and swallowing. Yeah, yeah, um, it's a, a common condition that's often mm -hmm. treated by speech pathologists. Uh, and again, there's, like you said, there's no uh, structural cause to it. Uh, and so, look, what, one of the things I should add to FND is that traditionally it's been something that's been diagnosed through the process of exclusion. So, lots of uh, lots of tests that can go on uh, for months and delaying um, treatment that's need to be implemented very quickly once FND's uh, detected. And so now there's there's a greater shift or there's a shift to diagnosing the conditions using positive clinical signs. Um, and for example, with uh, uh, functional limb weakness, um, uh, what neurologists or, or GPs can see is that the, the, um, there's improvement in um, flexion or hip abduction against resistance or, um, for example, tremors, uh, functional tremors can be uh, stopped with distraction. So those kinds of uh, indicators that there is a software issue going and that, that can be resolved through a shift in attention Whereas if it was completely structural, um, the body wouldn't be able to respond in, in a way that um, we would expect. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tal, share with listeners the importance of that early, you know, a quicker diagnostic sort of process. Why, why is yeah. that really important? So what we're trying to do is prevent aberrant neuroplasticity. So the longer the condition goes without treatment, um, prognosis is poorer because uh, I guess illness beliefs uh, take stronger effect. Um, the, the, the symptoms themselves become more and more debilitating. Um, and, and so much of, uh, and a big part of that is I guess through through neuroplasticity, that those um, that communication uh, error with with FND uh, gets worse and worse over time. Um, 
So if we intervene quickly, there's a, a better chance of um, correcting a lot of um, a lot of the symptoms through things like distraction, um, through energy management, case of occupational therapy, for example, um, physiotherapy, learning how to, to walk and, and recognising that or, or, or engage in um, movement control, for example, dystonia or, or tremor, um, realising that distraction can play a major part in um, preventing the symptoms. Uh, I guess, you know, fundamentally, the, the illness belief that the brain is damaged and the body is damaged, the longer that goes on for it, it creates this negative ex uh, expectation about one's capacity to, to function in everyday life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so FND sometimes has been, has been, you know, other terms have been used, Yeah. Yeah, so we've been talking about F&D now for centuries. Um, and so from Charcot to the present, well, I guess to the, the start of the 20th century, well, no, sorry, I'll start again. Um, from Charcot in the, um, the 19th century, mid-19th century to really to the 1990s, um, we were using the term conversion disorder and that diagnosis is still in the dsm-5 and so the conversion disorder theory posits that um, the body manifests uh, somatic symptoms um, as a result of um, repressed trauma or um, uh, long histories of, of childhood abuse or whatnot um, and so uh, psychological symptoms manifest as physical symptoms. But what we've discovered in, in the last 20, 25 years through the work of uh, people like Mark Edwards and John Stone and, um, is that there is a biological basis to what's happening, that the, the, the way that um, uh, people with FND, their, their brains work differently, by differently to people who are, say, feigning the condition. And I know through our discussions before that, that there's definitely a movement in, in in like a stress model or, or looking at, you know, obviously we've had chats about polyvagal, yeah. like a polyvagal lens. Um, yeah. That there's definitely... Um, movement within the field of understanding FND is, is looking at it from a stress model. Yeah, and a real game changer at the moment, we're about to sort of, I guess everything's about to be flipped again with the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett, her work around uh, the theory of constructed emotions and the result, her, um, the role of interoception mm -hmm. uh, and prediction error. And so that that really ties in nicely with the stress systems model that you know that looks at allostasis. Um, sorry, I forgot the word. <laughs> Essentially, energy conservation. Um, what the energy that we need to to manage everyday life and and how uh, this, this how things like psychological factors or social factors or biological factors can can drain 
um, energy that we need. Um, yeah, and and this yeah, like we talked about this, this, the stress systems that uh, respond to to those to those attacks on the body. And I think when you're given one of your presentations before, you talked about that that they have looked and saw like um, biological markers to show that there's a, like a stress sort of immune response happening um, yeah. in the body. Yeah, and look, what's really interesting, I guess some of the work that I've been looking at lately is the fact that any shock to the um to the biology, um, to the to the body and the brain, can trigger and uh, functional symptoms. And for a lot of people, it's often um, benign events, such as uh, physical illness or a surgery or or an injury of some sort. Not necessarily brain image uh, injury that can trigger a first um, functional symptom episode. Well, Michael, I think this segues beautifully into you telling your journey with FMD. Yeah. 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 Just because I think that really highlights that. Yeah. um, How you had sinus surgery. So anyway, I'm going to let you. you Yeah, sure. sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been practicing over 20 years now. Um, One day out of the blue, I woke up. And I couldn't walk properly. I was stumbling around like a drunk. And the odd thing about that was, in my mind, it felt like there was nothing wrong, even though um, my wife could see that there was something very wrong because mm-hmm. I was um, rushing around the house. And it was an amazing experience of feeling so disconnected from my body. Um, with, within uh, 48 hours, things got worse, and uh, eventually I, I, I saw my um, – on the second day, I saw my GP who said to me, you have to go to hospital now. Uh, and so my wife took me um, to emergency, and, and on the way to emergency, my condition um, got worse, and I, I began slurring, and I looked like I'd had a stroke, and when – I got out of the car. I fell out of the car and had to be wheeled in with a uh, on a wheelchair. And, and so, two weeks in hospital with lots of tests. Uh, there was no. Exp- I was. I wasn't given an explanation. But what what was one of the things that got brought up was the possibility that the condition was functional, and I was absolutely furious to believe that it could be any psychological, this, that, that this could have any psychological uh, underpinnings and that it was a stress response. And that was more or less what was what I was told. Um, and so when I returned home, my condition, my symptoms got worse and I started experiencing um, non-epileptic, what's called psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. So these are... Um, seizures that mimic epilepsy, however, they're very different in presentation and duration and, and brain activity. So these were becoming more frequent. My gait disorder got worse. Um, so I was walking around 
supporting my upper body, using my hands on my knees and experiencing chronic pain as a result of um, convulsions in my body. Um, and, you know, as, as my symptoms worse, as my pain got worse, a whole heap of other symptoms came with that. For example, chronic um, a hyperactive bladder and mental fatigue. And so with that came insomnia because I, I would go to bed in pain. I would sometimes have seizures in the night. And then when I finally fell asleep, I'd be woken up about three times because I was needing to go to the toilet. And so um, when I saw a, a urologist and uh, after a cystoscopy, everything was fine. So, so it was. I was feeling more and more desperate, and and that this story sort of really resonates with a lot of people I've spoken to with FND who've had this experience of being told, um, not really given the information that they need to understand what's happening to them, and because it's it's so scary because you become unrecognizable to yourself and. And the fear that, is this what my life is like from here on end? So I had to work really quickly. Um, and, and I had the advantage I have the, being a psychologist because I could um, research uh, and understand a lot of, of the literature about um what FND was, and so I essentially educated myself. And through that process, I found that different support channels like FND Hope and the FND Society, FND um, Support Services Australia, and um, and at the same time, I, without sort of realizing what I was doing, I, I created a multidisciplinary team, which is essential to FND treatment. So. Um, when I say I created, I, I just started calling around and um, I decided I needed an occupational therapist or, and a psychologist that specialised in FND. I needed uh, a neurologist that knew what he was talking about and uh, a physiotherapist that specialised in FND. And it, gradually I, I put together a team, you know, including a neuropsych, um, uh, yoga therapist. Well, I started off with yoga therapy, which made the greatest difference in terms of my cave. And that's been essential in, in my journey in getting better. So can I ask, Michael, at what point did you 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 actually kind of accept the diagnosis? At what point through all that? Was yeah. it just through, through the research? Because I know that you said that it's one of the most important components of getting, you know, of... Yeah. Your road to being well is is that that accepting yeah. diagnosis. So, wh wh where was that for you? Um, I can't pinpoint it exactly, but I think, yeah, like, like what you said, um, doing the research and recognizing, oh, okay, I'm experiencing what these people are experiencing, or what I'm reading about in the research, and that was the the moment where I, where I realized that, okay, this is what I've got and I've got to do something quickly because I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life. I want to be able to function better as a partner, as a friend, as a father, and as a professional. Mm 
However, you know, a lot of people get stuck and have really bad experiences as a result of talking to clinicians that aren't F&D savvy, like their GPs or neurologists or psychiatrists. And often people with F&D get referred on to psychiatrists um, because they're, they're essentially put in a too hard basket. And, and this comes back to the conversion disorder theory. There's that belief that this is just a psychiatric, psychological condition. Um, which if, if, a, if a person who's experiencing FND sees someone who isn't FND savvy, it's incredibly val- invalidating for them to hear that it's all just stress or if it's all in their head. Um, and over time, people become more and more desperate and then seen as malingering or you know, personality disordered um, nuisances, essentially. Uh, and it's sad because um, people with with non-epileptic seizures um, present very frequently to accident emergency in hospitals, and so these people get stuck in a vicious cycle of of trying to, in a long search, trying to find an alternative diagnosis. And again, that prolongs, you know. The, the period of time between treatment, um, identification and treatment. Um, and so acceptance is, is really crucial. And so and for me, fortunately, I got over that sort of that disbelief of what I was experiencing, which, you know, has helped me tremendously in getting better. Mm-hmm. And then your team, you said the team was really, really important in terms of... <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I'd say in my team, I, I, I guess the the person that was was really the team leader. Not not that that all the clinicians were talking to each other because they're all over across the country. The person that that I came to the most, apart from my yoga therapist, who I'd see um, three times a week individually. Um, was my occupational therapist and I learned probably the most in terms of managing my symptoms through her. And it was later on through my psychologist that I'd learned about the stress systems model and the its relationship to my symptoms um, all in all my risk factors that were driving, driving the condition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what kind of um, work were you doing with your occupational therapist that was the most helpful? What kind of things? Yeah. So, the first thing that we worked on was managing was was one learning all my warning signs. Essentially, what we started doing from the beginning was was developing a relapse prevention plan, which involved learning what my warning signs were, tracking them, learning about the boom-bust cycle, learning to pace myself and essentially structuring my day around that. So we we put together a a daily routine um, for the week in which we would sort of look at um, high, moderate, low 
demand activities and where to, to place them in order to um, prevent seizures, which would always I'd be at greater risk of seizures uh, in the evening because uh, due to fatigue, physical fatigue phys and mental fatigue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, 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 that's where that sort of energy model comes in, doesn't it? Yeah, looking at yeah. the fatigue levels and, and yeah. how the brain's coping with that. Yeah. yeah. And then I believe that, um, that there's an app that you found really helpful. Yeah, so there's a number of apps available now. When I started this journey, there was um, really nothing um, that was that was F and D specific. So um, the the app that I used to to keep track of my symptoms is called is called hashtag track it, and I use that with my my watch, and so I'd get reminders every hour to basically rate what my sim different symptoms were that I that I punched into the uh, into the app and so the idea of that was not to draw attention to my symptoms in a way that it was going to cause me distress it was more of a okay check in now how uh, how much stress am I experiencing um, what's my fatigue level um, uh, what's my mood like, for example? Um, and so I'd rate that, and essentially what it would mean that is if I scored a five for any of these, then I needed to stop and do, well, no, sorry. <laughs> if I was at a five, then I was in trouble. So if, if I was at, at a three then I or a four, I would need to, to stop what I was doing and either use a distraction activity or um, take rest. Um in the early days of my FND, sometimes I'd have to, to nap three times a day. Mm -hmm. But the great thing is now that there's some really fantastic apps. There's the Neurosymptoms FND Guide, which is essentially um, the the website in an app form. Neuro Neurosymptoms is, is like the Bible of, of FND for, for both clinicians and patients. Um, there's the FND. Australia Services app, um, um, sorry, Support Services Australia. And that is a fantastic app because it, it not only does it provide F&D education, but it also um, provides patients with lived experience stories um, to help you know, people relate and find hope. And it also offers like a symptom tracking component and there's another app called my fnd which does all the, it's more of a cognitive behavior therapy approach mm -hmm. to um to tracking symptoms and responding to them mm -hmm. so some like good resources so i mm. just want to add you know because some people listening might be thinking this is more of an adult sort of condition and presentation but uh we certainly see fnd in in children and adolescents as well yeah Do you, do you want to speak to that, and then I'll add a little bit about you know some of my connections in there. Yeah, um, I think you'd be able to do a better job of it. Um, from, from my study, it's yeah that I mean that there's a dedicated clinic in Sydney that um, that 
provides uh, family therapy and treatment for young people. Um, and it's a condition that's becoming increasingly common with, with children. Um, there's the Bible of um, the stress systems model, which I know you'll talk about, the Casia's um, work, um, mm -hmm. functional somatic symptoms in children. Um, I should add that the what we're starting to see now is increased rates of mortality um, in um, if people experience the, the functional seizures and the greatest risk group are, is actually um, people under 30, including teenagers. Um, and um, when I say mortality, I'm talking about suicide risk. Um, so that's really concerning. And, and, yes. um, and I guess the other part of this is that with, with children, um, I guess kind of like any condition, for example, like schizophrenia, that the earlier the um, the first presentation of symptoms, the worse progno the prognosis is if not, if it's not treated, you know, immediately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. You're right. Um, Dr. Kozlowska's work is really sort of you know, groundbreaking in terms of um, F and D for for children and adolescents. And, and I know from speaking with her, she said, yes, the incidence um, of presentation of these sort of you know, functional neurological disorders in children, with children presenting with you know, psychogenic seizures, presenting with neurological, you know, motor neurological presentations, tics, you know, looking like they've had, you know, a head injury um, or totally disassociating. Yeah. Um, and with no, as you say, absolutely no um, actual biological or physio, physical yeah. reason for yeah. and definitely related to, to stress. And it's not necessarily that there is a big major stressful event, yeah. in, as, as you mentioned as well, but the same for children. It's not like they come from you know, very you know, family, you know, challenged families where there's a lot of trauma and stress, but... Um, there's just the accumulation of daily yeah. stress from everything that's happened. Yeah. Kids, kids, you know, picking up from, from obviously the stress around talk about climate change to mm. stress of coping in school and been going through the pandemic. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah. All these things and you know can play out and present in and as you say, it's like the brain's the brain's communication. And trying to cope under um, under sort of the stress and the energy yeah. absorption from, from from that environmental and physical stress. So yeah, so definitely this is a condition yeah. that's that's present in in kids and, and adolescents as well. I'll add to that in terms of my mm -hmm. journey. I I was diagnosed with. Uh, chronic asthma at, at, at the age of two, and I spent a good part of my childhood in in and out of hospital, pumped up with a lot of drugs. And um, I think you know, coming back, you know, looking at the stress systems model, um, I had 
developed such a strong biological vulnerability from all the medications that I was that was getting put into my system and all the the trauma and stress of being hospitalized four times a year for weeks on end and um and that you know those kind of aversive childhood experiences really um can you know play a major role for for children developing fnd but but for adults um if you add that to um psychological factors um, and social factors like um, relationship stress or work stress or um, these kind of things can play out in um, functional symptoms like headaches and body pains and gastrointestinal um, um, issues that a lot of children experience and report and um, I know I know in the book um, Kazia talks a lot about that as early warning signs for F&D children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to sort of talk a little bit more, move on to now is I know you've done some different, um, in your journey, some different things that have been very helpful for you. Um, mm. So maybe I just want you we'll talk about um, maybe virtual reality and then I'd just love to share with the listeners that, you know, that you've now been going through and experiencing the Safe and Sound Protocol, and you yeah. just sort of share a little bit about because you've done some a lot of work, and now adding something like this tool, um, what are the, some of the things that you that you've, you've noticed? But let's start yeah. with the virtual, the virtual reality because I think that's a really wonderful tool to to share with people who might be experiencing it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the exciting thing is with that is it's something that's and, and the, the, there's some studies that are, um, have, have come out of um, this groundbreaking work um, that, that, are, that are in progress. So with virtual reality, it was introduced to me by my neuropsychologist. And essentially what it came out of is the work of um, Matt Richardson and his nocebo therapy. Um, I'm sorry, nocebo. Uh, cognitive behaviour therapy, and that looks at the role of uh, negative expectations um, in the, I, I guess, in the pathogenesis and the maintenance of functional symptoms. So our expectation that the body is broken or the brain's broken um, is reinforced by symptoms, and you know, over time, there's that expectation that. Um, one can't control their body. The body is some, something to be afraid of, particularly when it comes to seizures. So Lynn, my neuropsychologist, started me with um, virtual reality um, by playing a game called Beat Saber. And Beat Saber, uh, well, sorry, whilst I was playing Beat Saber, she videoed me doing it. And so Beat Saber is a highly stimulating game which um, involves holding two lightsabers and you're coming, you're standing in, um, in this virtual world that's futuristic world which is really beautiful and you've got these minimalistic um, and you've got these uh, cubes coming at you and, and, it, and 
one is red, one is blue, and you have a red-blue lightsaber, and you have to hit um, the, the the cubes with the corresponding color with your with the light the corresponding um, lightsaber. But the trick is each of the cubes have different arrows pointing the way um, the direction in which the cube has to be cut. And then on top of that, you are having to do this in time with music, and on top of that, you're having to um, dodge obstacles coming in your way and so how this is explained is well sorry and doing this for a couple of songs um lynn later showed me that i'd started um my body movements became more and more fluid and no different to to someone who had who didn't have functional um Neurological disorder, functional movement—sorry, functional movement disorder in this case. Um, so uh, it was fascinating to watch, and so I, I went out and bought myself an Oculus um, virtual reality kit and started playing these games, and uh, it really helped correct what was happening with. With, with my gait, but, but more than that, playing games like um, Res Infinite, Infinite or um, All the Climb, which is a, a virtual rock climbing game, it would help me manage other symptoms like pain um, or fatigue even. And the, the experience is, is that when you shift your attention away from um, your conscious attention to symptoms, um, particularly when you are in a, in a state of heightened emotions, um, the virtual reality world sort of helps you restore your un um, restore unconscious normal movement um, because you've got no choice. You have to re react naturally uh, and, and unconsciously in the virtual world. And so um, you suspend your negative expectations about what your body can do um, and you just um, respond fluidly. Um, fascinating. So fascinating. Yeah, so I know you've had really good results with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So now let's just talk a bit about um, your experience with the the Safe and Sound Protocol. And I want to share that that you are also a musician. So you have yeah. yes, so you play the guitar. Yep. Yes. Yeah, I that's that's my primary instrument. And mm. the interesting thing through all this is um my my guitar if anything my guitar playing has improved. <laughs> and, and 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 probably it was, it was something that was really important in my in my recovery because when I was playing my guitar, I didn't have symptoms and I, I wasn't paying attention to symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and tying in with the, the Safe and Sound Protocol work is that um, people with F&D have what's called attention bias. So, um, well, people, uh, for example, it's really common, say, for example, People with with anxiety, when when you're experiencing fear, you, you really um, those emotions 
those triggers become really sticky and it's hard to sort of break out of that um, that fire, the um, the the sympathetic nervous system activation. So similar with, with with FND, just paying attention to symptoms really exacerbates the condition, and so that's where distraction comes in as a really powerful treatment tool. And so with safe and sound, um, the process is very very distracting, um, and and I, and I say that in a good way because. Listening to the music, um, at first I was trying, approaching it from a musician's perspective because I, I purposely didn't do any polyvagal theory research or anything into the safe and sound protocol. I wanted to go in with a beginner mind. Mm-hmm. And so at first I was like, okay, I'm listening to music. What's what is it that's happening here? Um, and 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 trying to question. Okay, well, okay, there's some bilateral stimulation going on because I can. Um, there's some binaural sort of um, panning between left to right ears um, with, with certain instruments um, featuring or, or or crossing over from from left to right. And I was thinking, oh, maybe that's what it is. And I'm thinking, oh, is it certain frequencies? And like I've discussed with you, being such a music snob, normally I would like, oh, God, I hate this music. And not not because of the way it was performed. I think the way it was performed is fantastic. But just like if I was in a shopping centre, I'd have to put headphones (laughs) straight out the music. However, what was was a massive surprise to me was at first I found it, well, I found it very relaxing and I couldn't put my finger as to, as to why that was the case because normally, like I said, it would trigger a disgust response. <laughs> um, and the first few times I did it, I fell asleep. And I was thinking, oh, oh, that's I'm doing it wrong. You know, if I'm falling asleep, then it's not working and I have to do it again. And, and... Yeah, but then we checked in and we sort of said, yeah. no, no, we don't need to repeat. Falling asleep is good, so... Yeah. yeah, just keep yeah. going. Yeah. So the biggest, well, okay. So, so before I jump into the biggest win with it was, um, I started using it and um, just throughout the day, and I found that I was becoming more and more relaxed in situations that would normally trigger, for example, having a teenage daughter, uh, having tantrums and um, and that kind of, you know, everyday experience that a lot of parents go through with, with, with teens. It would, um, living with FND, I became more and more reactive to any sort of um, interpersonal stress or, or um, people raising their voice. It would very much trigger... Um, it would send my body stress systems into overdrive, and so I'd either, and and quite often I would start to develop um, functional symptoms. Um, and it was often the gait would be the first thing that would would go. And sometimes, if, for example, if I was having an argument with my daughter, or my daughter was having an argument with my wife, um, but at the early day, in the early stages of 
life indeed that would be really triggering just the sound of of people yelling um, um you know nothing over the top just everyday life you know living with a teenager and so quite often i would um i would slink into a gate disturbance and, and sometimes i'd uh, in the early days i'd actually have falls or Sometimes I'd have to be carried to my bedroom, to my bed, because I'd start having seizures. Um, and so with the safe and sound work, um, I started to notice that my reactivity to what was going on around me was was dropping. I, I, I didn't um, get uh as anxious um, or angry in response to anything that annoyed me um, or, or, or upset me. I, I felt like I was becoming more equanimous mm -hmm. in, in responding to you know, everyday life. Um, and even the things that were stressing me about, stressing me out about money or career and things like that, I started to um, feel lighter. But the, the biggest game changer that happened for me, which we've talked about, is um, was when I felt um, I was experiencing, I, I started to experience my seizure symptoms come on pretty hard. This was following um, uh, just some stress at home. Um, and my... The belief that I had was um, that was prior to this was that okay I've just got to deal with this situation and this is an unconscious belief mind you um, I'm going to deal with this situation once that's dealt with I can go uh, lie down rest and have a seizure that, now that's not not what, what someone with FND is like telling themselves what's going to happen but. Um, with my through my work with my neuropsychologist and the nocebo therapy, I realized okay, so this was there was this negative expectation. This is what's going to what's going to happen. Um, and so she talked a lot about, um, and we we looked at exposure therapy um, in terms of you know stressful situations um, that trigger uh, F and D symptoms. Uh, how do we sort of break the the connection between beliefs that some that I'm going to have symptoms and having symptoms? Um, so on one particular occasion, I noticed you know I got through the situation and I noticed the symptoms coming on, and so normally I would lie down and start convulsing, um, but this time I had the the idea following our our work together to uh, grab my phone, plug my headphones in, and just listen to, <laughs> to the music that I hated, <laughs> 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 but, but, but without hating it. You know, it was just uh, I and I, I I lay down in my bed, listen to the music, and um, the symptoms um, just passed really quickly, and nothing happened. So. Uh, after 10, 15 minutes of doing that, I was fine. Now, previous to that, I was doing that with virtual reality, but and as I 
explained to you before that it takes a bit of setting up. Like it's it's hard to do when when this when the symptoms are coming on hard. Like virtual reality is more of a preventive treatment and something that you can do when the warning signs are starting to to flare up. Um, but it requires you know having to set up a room, putting the you know headphones and the in the um, and the goggles on and all that kind of stuff. Whereas doing the safe and sound protocol was just really quick and easy. I could just, it was just a simple matter of grabbing my phone, opening up the app and plugging the headphones in and just um, using that to get through. Well, well, using that as a, one, as a distraction and two, as, um, as a therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's pretty exciting to hear. And mm. then another thing that you, um, that you shared with me that you just sort of noticed that there was a, a shift in your your mood as well. Yeah. You just felt more um felt more you know more positive. And I, I think you talked about a particular time when I think it was a weekend and I think the daughter was feeling a bit sort of darker that day and her mood didn't sort of seem yeah. to sort of get under your skin. So maybe if you remember yeah. that. Yeah, so, so she was, um, yeah, she was she was doing her, her exams, and so she was particularly stressed out that weekend. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, um, normally, and a lot of people with I hear this a lot with people of a lot of people with F and D. Um, some some people talk about feeling like a complete. You know, being horrible to their to their family and um and friends because they're so reactive to to anything you know that that stresses them and so for me is um how i dealt with other you know with other people's stress around this time was to um was to feel helpless and, and feel more fearful or or angry if i couldn't sort of solve the problem um and so uh and and on top of that the functional cognitive aspects um make it very hard to communicate when you're feeling stressed um so um on this particular weekend i um yeah i i just uh, i was i was using the protocol and um and it felt like my old self again that I could just respond to to my daughter and be there for her um, without getting caught up with with what she was experiencing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, be, being the dad that I wanted to be. I bet that felt really good. Mm. Yeah, yeah it, it felt like I was kind of my old, the old Michael was coming back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So we're almost done with the protocol. So is there anything else that you feel like you've noticed that might have? Um, so, yeah, I, I I had a break after a week from feeling sick, and I'm not sure if it was an FND thing or just a, um, a viral infection. I think it was probably... Probably more of that. Um, and coming back to it, um, 
the other day I was feeling stressed out and my wife was um, saying to me, look, oh, and, and sorry, no, I was feeling stressed out, but I was also exhausted and normally um, back in the old days I would need to go and have a 10 to 20-minute sleep. And she said to me, well, why don't you do you know, something different? Um, and so instead of going down to have a sleep, I just grabbed the headphones and uh, did a, an SSP session. And normally with fatigue and F&D, it, it, it often results in pain symptoms. So after um, 12 to 15 minutes doing the SSP, I just felt rejuvenated and I, I felt like I'd, I'd had a sleep and I came out of it without any um, pain symptoms um, and or fatigue. So that was a another wonderful experience to report. That is. That is. Mm. That's excellent, Michael. Yeah. yeah. And look, I, I, I should sort of, I don't want to sort of create any false hopes because mm-hmm. um, for, for people with F&D, it's, it's such a nebulous, um, insidious condition and, and everyone has a very different experience. And from the conversations I've had with people with F&D, some things work better for others than, than some people. You know, mm-hmm. some things don't work at all. Um, for example, um, a lot of people had tried virtual reality and um, and for people who had had different experiences some people had have had tremendous tremendously help, helpful experiences with EMDR and some people didn't find it helpful at all and I guess that's like that for every you know every person what's exciting I think for me and for the SSP community in this respect is that no, I live with F and D, but I went into this treatment um, in, in um, almost, you know, I, I was blind. I, there was there was no expectation. There was um, I didn't have any expectation that it work, and or, or vice versa. It was and I didn't want to know any of the mechanism mechanisms. I just wanted to experience it. So now I, I'm going to go back and, and find out what was was actually happening. Mhm, mhm, and we can talk more about yeah. that when I set up. But um, so we have already talked previously about Dr. Kozlaska and her work. Mm. Um, she so she works at the Westmead um, Children's Hospital, um, and they have a um, FND inpatient um, program there for children and mm. adolescents. And um, as you said. FND is so complex and and unique to everyone's you know nervous system and what people respond to at different times and they have a pretty intense program and um, I know they had a particular case of a, of a young adolescent um, female who had gone through their program uh, you know doing all their mindfulness all their physio all their sort of FND informed clinicians. Um, working with her, but she was not able to really get anything out. You know, it, mm. nothing seemed to really work with her, and different medications didn't really sort of work with her. So 
um, with Dr. Kozlowska, who was sort of thinking, well, we're working with FND, you really have to sometimes go outside of the box. And yeah. he had um, was familiar with Dr. Porges's work and um, and heard about the Save and Save protocol and had uh, approached us and um, to look to offer that. So we did a training with her team and they started implementing the Safe and Sound Protocol, but with this particular client in mind. So um, her team ended up writing up the case study uh, that mm. was uh, published in um, a Harvard Review Journal. And I will put that link to that particular paper on the podcast um, yeah. Facebook page. And I know I've shared it with you recently. Yeah, it's a fantastic paper. Yeah. And it's a really nice paper that explains kind of how the team tried to engage in all the different approaches that they worked and they started with the Safe and Sound Protocol going through uh, 30 minutes um, sessions with this young uh, lady and she went from being wheelchair bound to walking with a walker to walking independently to actually engaging with all of her um, team of practitioners and um yeah, I think she was having tics and seizures and all those things started to resolve her energy levels, her everything just shift and changed. Um, so yeah. it really did. Um, and I think, as you said, it's kind of the difference is this sort of bottom-up approach to helping to resource the nervous yeah. system um, through that, you know, through that vagal nerve, uh, supporting that vagus nerve but also the ear in terms of sort of processing acoustic information so we can actually engage and co-regulate mm. uh better so so i think it provides another another tool yeah. for people to to explore as um to help with resourcing the nervous system definitely yeah mm. so i'm so happy that you've been able to you know experience some shifts and changes yourself yeah. and sort of share that with with and I know that your your work also is a lot to do with helping to provide education yeah. um, about FND and and supporting practitioners and I think that's really important work. That's why I wanted us to to have this discussion so we can help bring more awareness to to um, FND and because I'm sure there's going to be people who are listening who maybe are struggling with some of the symptoms that we talked about and um, and maybe aren't getting the answers and maybe they can, you know, therefore look for more research or resources or some of the things that we've talked about. Mm. Mm. So is there anything else you think you'd like to, any advice or any other last thoughts you'd like to share? Um. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things. Mm -hmm. um, one, and and this is for people who have F and D and for clinicians. Um, it's really, it's really only been in the last 10, 15 years that we're we're developing therapies for this, and so research and and the development of therapies is, is still in its infancy, and so we're um, yes, there's trial and error, but um, the, the research that's coming out is uh, is so exciting, and the volume of research it's I can't keep uh, can't, I can't keep on top of it because I, I'm subscribing to all these different journals, and the, it's it's really exciting just to see what's coming through. Um, 
So there is hope. Um, and that the more people, the more clinicians know about these conditions where um, the, the greater the outcomes. So for the clinicians listening to this, please go out and educate yourself. There are some fantastic websites that we um, like neurosymptoms.org. Um, uh, if you want to learn more about treating the condition or just understanding it, um, I'm um, on the social social media committee for uh, the FND Society, and um, we're releasing um, previously um, members only um, webinars uh, on FND education. So um, there's a lot of fantastic resources on that website. That's um, www.fndsociety.org. Um, Highly recommend signing up for that. Um, for people experiencing FND, um, please check out sites like FND Hope and FND Support Services Australia, uh, and especially neurosymptoms.org. It's so important to educate yourself and in order to, to get on top of the symptoms and get the right treatment early. Excellent. And we'll put links to those resources on the Save and Sound Protocol podcast Facebook page as well as on the show notes as well. So mm. um, that those will be there. And um, and we could even put a link to your Facebook um, page as well. Yeah. Yeah. For, for practitioners, I think that's a great resource for practitioners yeah. to connect with other practitioners who are working with clients that present with FND symptoms. Yeah. Um, that early, those early days of, you know, getting... The information to get diagnosed so we'll link all that up and i think yeah. that's what it is it's a matter of sharing knowledge and connecting yeah. together yeah. So, yeah so this was excellent thank you so much i knew it was going to be because you just you're amazing to share information with and you're you know, well, thank sharing you. your personal story so it's really yeah really appreciate your time and the work that you're doing thank you and i've really appreciated this experience working with you and what you've the, the other res, another resource you've given me. If you'd like to learn more about the Safe and Sound Protocol in Australia and New Zealand, please contact Integrated Listening Australia. The website is integratedlistening.com.au. And for the rest of the world, please contact Unite Integrated Listening at integratedlistening.com.